All right, brothers. Is it still morning? Good morning. We got 15 minutes of morning left. <laughs> so, uh, a few things before we start. Number one, I was informed gracefully, kindly, gently, that it was kind of offensive that I was preaching with shorts on. And so I've repented. And, and I, think, I think what we can, what we can learn, okay, which I've had to learn, uh, we should honor the culture that we're in, okay? So I had no idea that shorts were offensive. In America, you could preach in shorts, at least at my church, and no one says anything. They don't care. But if that matters to you, I, I want to honor that, okay? So I, whoever, you don't have to raise your hand, please don't. Whoever that was or... You know, I'm sorry. And, and it was not intentional. Honestly, I don't want to bring any hindrance to the word because that's what we're here for. Okay. All right. So that's number one. Number two, our group was lively. <laughs> and, and, and I was asked, hey, can you preach on church membership? Can you do a message on, on spiritual gifts and healing? Do you think you could talk about casting out demons? And I'm like, I, I have a message already that I'm supposed to preach. <laughs> However, I could preach on any of those things. One of the things that someone said that, that I think would be helpful, okay? Um, somebody had mentioned that because we're so word-centered here, they've wondered, do we believe in the power of God? Okay, now that assumes something. What it assumes is uh, power comes through spiritual gifts and not the word, okay? Because it was in, the question was in the context of spiritual gifts. It assumes that you only see the power of God through spiritual gifts. Well, that's true and not true at the same time. The way it's true is you do see the power of God through legitimate biblical spiritual gifts. Power of God is seen. In fact, Jesus said yesterday, you remember in my message, believe because of the works I do, meaning the miracles. They were authenticating him. They were pointing to who he was. Okay. So, but the second way that we see the power of God is through the word. The word of God has power. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Who can finish it? Now the word sanctify does mean set apart, but it also means to grow in grace and godliness. How do we grow in grace and godliness? Through the word. The word has power to change our inner persons. And when our inner person is changed, it works its way out. When we are born again at the first, we have a new spirit. Ezekiel 36 says, I will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will give them a new spirit and I will put my spirit in them and cause them, cause them to walk in my ways. God causes us by his spirit to walk in his ways. Now, how do we know what his ways are? The word. And so as the word is rightly understood, the Holy Spirit comes in to that understanding, that realization, that revelation, and he moves us to transformation. And our brother Robert did such a good job, way better than I could have done, by showing, like, what does standing up here and speaking in unintelligible syllables have to do with anyone changing? It has nothing to do with you changing. But if you've understood intelligently what we've been preaching, and then the Holy Spirit decides to light that on fire in you and your church, things will change. And so the word has power. Let us not say power is only seen in spiritual gifts. No. Power is seen when the word is rightly understood and the Holy Spirit moves through that word to change and transform. Amen? We cool with that? All right. So that being said, a third, even though I didn't plan on a third, Robert Manda leads uh, what's called Church in Hard Places. Okay, this, this all came up in my group, so that's why I'm, I'm getting it out of the way now. Uh, we talked about ecclesiology. We talked about women deacons. We talked about women pastors. We talked about are, are ushers deacons or are they, do we need qualified men and women to like set up chairs? We talked about all that stuff. All that is what is called ecclesiology from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word we get what? Church, ecclesia or ecclesia. So we're talking about ecclesiology. Robert leads a training 
that our network, the Acts 29 Church Planning Network does called Church in Hard Places. This is a hard place. And so I'm not gonna steal his message later, but you will learn good ecclesiology if you are to enter into this free training that Robert's gonna talk about later. So please don't leave. It's the last session. And at that last session, we're also gonna give you the resources that Pastor Jimmy just showed you. So please stay to the end. It's gonna be really good for you and you're gonna have opportunity to enter into more training like this. And I think for my group in particular, wherever you all are, uh, if you were to engage that training, the, all those questions would be answered in great detail. Okay, is that fair, Robert? All right, good. All right, so let's, friends, I've been tasked here with this, with this topic. What Robert just did for us was called expository preaching. He took a text and he went verse by verse by verse and he walked us through the text and he gave us understanding of the text and then he applied the text to our specific culture and situation. That's called expository preaching. And he also gave it a gospel-centeredness. In fact, the message was man-centered versus God-centered or uh, gospel-centered preaching. So that is expository preaching. Okay, we walk through a text. We see how does the gospel apply to it. Robert did a great job there. I am not going to do that right now. What I'm going to do is what's more of a topical message. And my topic, even though we'll walk through scripture because it is the only authority, my topic is caring for the pastor's soul. So this has to do with your health spiritually. Listen, friends, if you're not healthy, you cannot produce healthy disciples. If you're not healthy, you cannot create a healthy church. And so listen, even though it sounds counterintuitive and contradictory, you need to work on your health before you work on the health of anyone else. My ministry affords me to, to ride on airplanes. And, and every time you get on an airplane, uh, what happens is the, the, the stewardess or the, or the male uh, helper, I don't know what they're called if they're males. Flight attendant, thank you. They, they, they always give the same instructions. And one of the things they give you is, listen, in an event of a crash, which is very unlikely, <laughs> but just in case we land in the ocean, an oxygen mask will drop from the ceiling. And you know what they say? They say, you need to put that mask on your face first before you try to help anyone else. Because if you pass out because you don't have oxygen, who are you going to be able to help? No one. Same thing with being a pastor. Friends, if you're not spiritually healthy, how can you help other people to get healthy? Okay, this is an important message. So let's dig into it. First text I want to look at is actually the end of Robert's message. Providentially, we did not talk about this. So this is totally a God thing here that I would end right where he left off. First Timothy 4.16 in the English Standard Version says this. Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. Notice that, on yourself. And... On the teaching. Now look at the Christian Standard Bible. Pay close attention to your life. It's a good translation as well. Yourself and your life. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. So friends, it's not an either or. It's a both and. We must watch ourselves care for ourselves, make sure that we are spiritually healthy, and make sure that our teaching is sound and biblical and gospel-centered and theologically accurate. Thumbs up? Yeah. All right, good. So from the scriptures, I think here you could make an argument for what I'm teaching you, and I'm going to teach through scripture here. But Paul instructing a pastor his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, yo, watch yourself, watch your life. And often, at least in my tribe of theologians, we like the teaching part. We don't often like the self-care part. I can sleep when I'm dead, we say. <laughs> yeah, you will. But you might not have to die so early. Amen. Right? Don't, so, so here's what I'm aiming at. I'll tell you right up front. What I want for all of you 
And what I want for myself, frankly, is longevity in ministry. Do we have fireworks in Uganda? We do. Okay. So if you've ever watched fireworks, specifically rockets, they shoot up and then they explode and they're bright and then they're gone. Let's not be fireworks. Like, let's last for decades, decades. Let's last for 50 years. Or if you're like in your 60s, let's last another 20, 30, 40, however long God would give you. Let's not be a firework and and explode and have a year or two of healthy ministry and then we're out of the ministry. And for a lot of guys, they don't do this watch yourself part well and they drop out of ministry. And they start well and they don't finish well. What we need to aim at, friends, listen, is finishing well. Yeah, let's watch right now and see the fruit, but let's aim at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. How are we going to do that? We need to be healthy. All right. So now I want to get into a few uh, theological concepts. God has created you in such a way that you have many needs. When I flew in here, uh, it was a 10-hour flight, or I'm sorry, it was an hour flight, then a 15-hour flight, and with, with the layovers and whatnot, it was about 24-ish hours a day. I did not sleep, okay? And then we had to stay in the airport for another, what, 30 hours? 24? What? 24-ish, another hours? And we slept on hard benches, but we didn't really sleep. And then we took an, an eight-hour drive from Kenya to the border of Uganda, and we didn't sleep. And then from Uganda, we took another six, seven hours to Gulu. So by the time we got here, we were exhausted. But then we had to jump right into ministry. And then we didn't sleep the next night because we were up working so this would work well. And so like in three or four days, I got maybe five hours of sleep, if that. Yesterday, I was 100% dead. You might not have been able to tell, but some of you probably could. Like there's something wrong with that guy. Last night, I got about five hours. I feel like I got 24 hours of sleep. Like five hours did the trick, all right? Now that ties into a theological concept called you are created by God to be dependent. And friends, we need sleep. Like God made you to sleep. And did you know that when you get the right amount of sleep, you're actually worshiping God? Because he made you to need sleep. And so if you're like, I don't need to sleep. What are you saying to God? So so when you agree with God's creation order, you are glorifying him, which is what you were created to do. Image him and glorify him. He sleeps just one. Did you know that you need to eat? Friends, if you don't eat healthy, your body begins to deteriorate. Our brother yesterday was rebuking us for all the coffee and all the sugar and all the, you know, the carbs. Now, I'm still going to eat carbs and drink coffee and I'm still going to do all that. But I'm still going to, I'm going to be more cautious about when I do that. Like, I'm probably not going to drink coffee in the pulpit because it restricts your vocal cords and does damage your voice a little bit. So maybe I'll drink water instead now. That was helpful. So I would listen to what that brother said yesterday. That was super helpful. All right, so let's, so the theological concept that I want to unpack right now is you are a creature. God is the creator. He is in his own circle. Everything else is creation. Everything. Even angels and demons, Satan himself, a part of creation. God is dependent on no one and nothing in his circle. Everything and everyone in the second circle is utterly dependent on him. Even Satan. Satan can't exist without God upholding his being. At any moment, God could be like out of existence and he, would, he couldn't stay existing because he's not self-sufficient. Okay, that being said, God created you on purpose to need. You're like, I don't like that. Did you create yourself? Are you the designer of human beings? No. And so the reason, I think it was John Piper who opened my eyes to this. He said, the reason that God made us so needy and dependent is so we would realize we are not him. You're not God. And so why are you pretending to be one is a good question. You say, well, I'm I'm a lesser God. I'm like Thor, you know, I'm, I'm half God. 
No, you're not. You're a human being made in the image of God and you need to sleep and you need to eat and you need to, as we'll get to in a moment, be communing with the source of health, God himself. All right, so let's first uh, go to uh, slide two. Now, I know this text is offensive because it came up even in my little circle there. Listen, guys, alcohol is not a sin. Getting drunk is a sin. You search the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, drinking alcohol is not a sin, okay? And so if you make it a sin, then you make Jesus a sinner because he drank a lot of wine. You, you know what his first miracle was? How many gallons were those, were those water pots? 30. There were six of them. Anyone good at math? 30 times six? Who's good at math? How many? 180. 180 gallons of wine. And then the host said, usually, once everyone's had the good wine, then they don't notice when you bring out the bad wine. That implies something. Right? You said, it was just grape juice. Then why did he say that? That statement doesn't even make sense if it was grape juice. Okay, do I need to be more plain? Usually you let everybody get buzzed and a little drunk, then you bring out the bad wine because they don't notice. That's what it means. You're like, and then Jesus adds 180 more gallons of the good stuff? Now listen, I know I'm stepping on toes right now and I'm not trying to. What, what I'm trying to say is, listen, if you're in your church preaching from the pulpit, if you taste alcohol, you're a sinner, you're preaching falsely. And so here's a text that literally tells Timothy, drink some wine, man. Look, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine. But why? Listen, the why is the, is the better question. Because I'm not here to argue for the use of alcohol. I could care less. I don't drink. Okay? Use a little wine. Why? For the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So wine in Timothy's case was like medicine. And so what he's saying is like, Timothy, don't ignore your needs physically. You need to take some wine. If you don't like that word, just put medicine in there. Okay? <laughs> Timothy, don't only drink water. Drink your medicine. Is that better? We like that. All right. <laughs> my point, listen, listen. My point, my point here is this, which I think is Paul's point. Okay? We need to care for ourselves. Okay? And in Timothy's case, whatever the water was doing to him was not good. And he's like, listen, you need to make sure you're taking your medicine. Drink a little wine. Seriously, that's what he was saying. Is that funny? <laughs> I, all right, so let's move on. I can tell we don't like this slide. Let's go to a different slide. All right, so Psalm 127 is one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's definitely up there in my favorite. Now, what I'm going to unpack for you is what this psalm says about how we should view God and what that means to the way we think about our lives and the lives of our sheep. But then secondly, uh, what it says about our creatureliness. Okay? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, the house here uh, is, I think, in reference to your life, but it can also be extended to anything you're trying to build in your life. Whether it's a church, whether it's a business, whether it's a, a group, you know, a small group, whatever you're trying to build, listen, unless the Lord's building it through you, it's not going to work. Because he is the Lord and he is sovereign. And so we should always think to ourselves when things aren't going well. And listen, I, 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 I've, I had a very big upset in, in year two in ministry. We planted a church in 2014. Um, we got a great deal on a building and it needed renovated. And so I gathered a lot of people and a lot of resources to start renovating this building. And everything we did, USD, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds and hundreds of man hours. In other words, labor and labor in the States is more expensive than all any of the gear you would buy. 
it just kept failing. Nothing we did worked. The place kept flooding, the place kept molding. We redug sump pumps and we redug uh, French drains, if that means anything to you. And so I finally had to come to the conclusion the Lord is not building here. And so we just had to count it a loss, a big loss. And you know how I, I, I sustained in ministry and kept going through that massive loss? That verse. I had to come to terms with God is not in this. In fact, do you, know, do you know what I was saying to myself? If God is against us, who can be for us? That's real. And I felt like he was against us in this. And so I had to put it to rest. Now, you know what? I can look back on that six years later and say genuinely, it, he was against that. Do you know how I know that? It didn't happen. If he was for it, it would have worked and it would have happened. And because it didn't, I, I came to terms with this was his sovereign will for us. Now, I don't know what reason. That's often the case. When things go bad, we want to know why. What's the purpose? What's the reason? You often don't get that answer. You don't. And so we have to rest. Listen, this does apply to your soul here. When things go bad in your life, when things go bad in the lives of others, when you experience significant losses, this verse will help you. This is God. He is over this. And I don't know what you're doing, Lord. Help me to trust. Let me believe that this is for good. In fact, Tim Keller is a theologian I appreciate. And he said something like this. He probably got it from someone else. He said, when we pray or are trying to do something and we, we get upset and it's not working the way we want it to, he said, if we knew all that God knew, if we had the complete picture in view, we would want it exactly the way it is. In the hard, in the bad, in the struggle, we would want it. Our problem is we don't see all the pieces. We're not up in the heavens looking down and seeing what's called causality, meaning one thing causes a thousand other things. And then those thousand other things cause another thousand things. And so by you being here this morning, realize things are going to flow out of this conference that you didn't even plan on, but God did. The people that aren't here are actually not here on purpose because he had other things that he wanted to cause from them not being here. God is sovereign. I mean, Proverbs 16 does say the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the way, and in the New, the way they made decisions often when it was confusing was they cast lots or dice. The Urim and the Thummim in, in the priest's vest. So, so they sought the Lord's wisdom by, by casting lots. And the proverb says every one of those decisions implying all of the choices and all of the things that happened to us are of God. All right, now I have to move on. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Okay, tuck this away when things are going bad and remind yourself, if God's not in this, it's not going to work. I'm laboring in vain. The word vain means empty, empty laboring. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Now, I can apply this to your culture. Whenever I go into a nice restaurant or whenever I go into our hotel, there's a gate and it's locked. And when it's open, normally there's a guy with a big gun. Right? And so, listen, it's in vain that that guy stands there with that AK-47 unless the Lord is also watching over that house. Unless the Lord is also watching over that business. So God uses that man to watch over. That's his means. God is a God of means. He accomplishes his ends through human means. But that man cannot do his job unless God is also watching over. That's what that means. Okay? It is in, now look at verse two. Here we go. Ready? It is in vain. It is empty that you rise up early and go late to rest. That's a direct rebuke to me for the last like five days. It's empty that you do that. Now watch. Eating the bread of anxious toil. Wow. So think about this. We have to eat to survive. And what's sustaining you is anxiety producing labor. That's terrible. Has anyone ever, ever been in a job or been in a, in a situation where all it does is cause stress and anxiety and pressure? 
So, so what, what, what God is saying here through the psalmist is this. Listen, you don't have to go to bed super late and get up super early, anxiously toiling for survival because God is the one who sustained you. He made you to need rest. So go to bed a little earlier. Get up a little later if possible. You don't have to be anxious because listen, you are not technically ultimately the one keeping yourself alive. It is God. And so if we are eating the bread of anxious toil, and listen, pastors eat the bread of anxious toil, I think more than anyone else. There was a time early on in our church where there were so many problems, so many problem people, so much bad was happening. I couldn't sleep at night. I wanted to, and I couldn't. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would start thinking about all the problems and all the things that needed to happen and all that wasn't happening. And you know what I would do? I would literally have to put a sermon on, an audio sermon, so that I was out of my head and listening to someone else talk. And only then could I fall asleep. I recommend that, by the way. If you, if you can't sleep, man, put on something and listen to someone else talk. And if you're tired enough, you'll fall asleep. That's my sleeping pills. I don't need a prescription. I got Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul. All right. And I am Baptist, by the way, but I love my Presbyterian brothers. So that being said, friends, God is giving you a gift here in this verse three, rather verse two. He's saying, listen, you don't have to be stressed and anxious and worried eating this bread of anxious toil like you're the one keeping yourself alive. You don't have to do that. Behold, or or rather, here's how it ends. He gives his beloved sleep. Is that what it says? Even in his sleep. That's right. That's right. So listen, do you know who's not sleeping? God. He neither rests nor slumbers. Now, listen, we don't say this out loud, but this is the way we function or the way we act or the way we live. You ready? If I don't do this, if I don't anxiously toil and labor, things are going to crash. And and we don't want to do this, but we take God's spot. And listen, when you sleep, do you know who's not? God. Especially if you're a pastor, do you know who's church it actually is God's and so you can go to bed this is literally what Martin Luther the great German reformer would do he would he would when he goes to bed he would say I'm taking off the yoke or the burden of your people and I'm putting it on you God and then when I get back up in the morning I'll put it back on maybe that helps you before you go to bed God they're your people this church is your church I'm giving it over to you and I'm not a pastor right now quote unquote and I'm going to get some sleep. I'm going to bed. Now look, that's biblical. He gives to his beloved sleep. Listen, God loves his sheep. And guess what? Pastors are sheep too. Even though we shepherd the flock, we ourselves are sheep under the chief shepherd. And so he loves us as sheep. And he's like, I've given you the gift of sleep. Why won't you take the gift? Just take the gift. I've given it to you. I got it while you're sleeping. It's going to be all right. Now, there are extenuating circumstances where you get that call in the middle of the night. I get that. That's part of our our job. We get calls in the middle of the night. I've got them. I've had to rush out when I was doing home and family time. But that can't be all the time. And if it is, you need to set up some boundaries and some other people to step in and help. And again, that's kind of what we've been doing overall is saying, let's get healthy churches. Let's get healthy structures. Let's get more leaders. So not everything's on you. So you could get some sleep. Amen. All right. Verse three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. So verse uh, three here says children are a gift from God. And, then, and depending on the culture, children are either seen as a hindrance or a nuisance, or perhaps uh, you're saying like, man, if I could just not have a family or not have kids, I could get so much done. This is more American than it is probably Ugandan. But in America, we're like, man, there's, my family is such a hindrance. If I could just X my family, close the door, let them be away, I could get so much done. And it's as if getting things done for ministry is more important than your first ministry, which is actually your family. If you don't manage your own household well, how can you care for the church of God? 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So weapons, this is, this is a, a weapon analogy, arrows, and children are like arrows. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Quiver was the arrow holder. And so the, the translation is, load your house up with kids. And one day, you're going to shoot them out into the world, hopefully discipled, hopefully uh, working for the kingdom of God, and they're going to be transformative in their world. Because you've discipled them, and you've raised them to love Jesus and love others, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as their self. And as you shoot them out of your house, they go and they spread the kingdom of God. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, uh, this is uh, enemy language. So when you got a, a whole bunch of kids and you got some enemies in front of you, you could step like this and then your whole crew of kids gets behind you. Like, <laughs> mess with him? You're messing with us too. And so, so you got a personal little army behind you when you're in trouble. Hey, someone comes to take over the home. It's like, kids, get the... We don't have guns here, do we? What do we... Get the machete? What do we use? If I was in Asia, I'd say, get the ninja stars. But we're not. All right, let's go to the next slide. The way I want to apply Jesus to what I just said was Jesus, friends, was in that first circle I mentioned. Not dependent on anyone or anything else. Fully self-sufficient. But do you know what he did for our sake? He got into the second circle. He became weak vulnerable, himself needing sleep, himself needing to eat. And after 40 days, he was hungry and the devil tempted him. Just turn these stones to bread. Sleeping on the pillow in the middle of the storm. You remember that story? Jesus needed to sleep. He needed to eat. And you know what? He became weak and subject to harm, even to be able to be killed. Listen, God became killable. And so he understands. Jesus understands what it's like to be hungry, to need sleep. He understands the pressures of the world. In fact, uh, early on in Mark, there's so many people pressing for him that he literally waits till everyone's asleep and he sneaks out of the house quietly and he runs away into the wilderness. And when uh, Peter finally finds him, he's like, everyone's looking for you. He's like, we got to get out of here, man. I got to preach in other towns also. And they literally, all these people with needs, he leaves and he goes to another town and he starts preaching. Jesus understands ministry pressure. Okay. Now, Jesus became killable, but he didn't just become killable. He actually was killed. Not for his sins, not for anything he had done, but for our sins, for our failures, for our transgressions. But yet God didn't keep him dead, did he? He raised him to life, and now he is undestructible. He is now unneedy. But yet, amazingly, he's still God and man. And that's a whole other sermon. Okay? Let's move on now to John 15, 111. If you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus, then this takes place in the book of John when he's in the upper room. He's in the upper room. It's the Last Supper, we call it, but it was actually a Passover celebration that happened every year. So this isn't the first time he did this with the disciples. And so he begins to teach them as they're doing the Passover celebration. We call it the Last Supper. And look at what he says. I am the true vine. Okay, you, you, you're familiar with the I am statements. There's, there's something there. He's calling himself Yahweh from the Old Testament and Exodus. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Do you guys have grapes in Uganda? No. Wow. Okay. So that, that is a fruit that we have that you don't have. So where I'm from in Pennsylvania, if you go a little bit northeast of where we live in, in a place actually called the Northeast, uh, you can look out on the grape fields and it's as if I, I've seen tea fields like this here, driving from Kampala, as far as you can see tea leaves and you don't see the end of them. Any of you've seen that? Imagine that with grape vines. That's what the Northeast is like, just rows and rows and rows of grapes, which are crushed to make grape juice. And don't say it, don't say it. I won't say it. Jelly. <laughs> All right. 
So the imagery here is grapes. And, and when, you're, when you have a vineyard that is quality, you have what's called vine dressers. And vine dressers are able to know which of the vines need snipped so that the other ones get more of the sap so that the grapes can grow big and healthy. Now, I'm ignorant, so I'd be clipping off the good ones. I'd be like, that looks like a bad one. Meanwhile, that was the one I shouldn't have clipped. I have no idea what to do as a vine dresser. But here, the father is a vine dresser. In other words, he knows what to do. And listen to this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, this will be interesting to talk about maybe in our discussions, but I'm not going to unpack how can you be in Christ and then removed. I don't believe you can. And so that does need a little bit of unpacking, but I just don't have time right now. Okay. Here's the point that I want to make. It's later in the verse. Already you are clean. In other words, you're already washed of your sin. You're already in me. You're already safe. You're already saved. You, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That's gospel. We speak the gospel word. Romans 1.16 says it has power unto salvation for everyone who believes. They are cleansed by this gospel word that was preached to them by Jesus and they are saved. Now, this is pre-cross, so it was not a full gospel because the cross and the resurrection has happened, but it was enough that they trusted in him, and when he died on the cross, he was also dying for the disciples' sins. Good with that? Okay. Abide in me. Here it is, friends. For your soul, this is what you need to do. This is what I need to do. This is what hell will fight against you to do. Satan and demons do not want you abiding in Christ. Abide in me. Now, what does it mean to abide in him? We'll unpack that. Abide in me and I in you. That would be the Holy Spirit. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, unless it stays connected to the vine, which gives it the sap, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do... Now listen, we need to take that serious. Okay, so here's what it is to abide. We're going to get real practical here. Ready? When we spend time with God alone, Robert just said, get a study, get a room in your house, close the door, spend time with God intentionally in the word and in prayer. Psalm 1 would say, on the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. So there's this interaction between us and the word and God that is called meditation. We invite God into our reading, into our studying, and we say, God, please open up your word to me. And we think about what we're reading and we pray over what we're reading and God, the Holy Spirit, begins to speak to us in his word, open it up to us. What is locked becomes unlocked and the door opens. That's called meditation. It's thinking over the passage in God's presence. And then we engage God in prayer. This is in part what it means to abide in him. Secondly, what does it mean? So what did I just say? Listen. What does it mean to abide? You need to be in God's presence in prayer and in scripture reading. Meditation. Psalm 1. You write that down. Secondly, secondly, you need to be applying what the word says. See, don't just be hearers of the word, but what? Be doers. So now you read it, you understand it, and you're like, yes, I've finished the task. No, you haven't. We now need to walk in what we're learning. And listen, what Jesus said is you can't do that without him. Without me, you can do nothing. And so what this looks like is you see something in the word that pricks your heart. God speaks to you. You need to take action. You say, oh God, give me the grace. Give me the power to do what this is calling me to do. Work it out in my life. And so you're not just learning the word, memorizing the word, understanding the word. You're now taking action. You're doing what James said to do. Be doers of the word. And so we, we understand and we seek to then apply. Now, Thirdly, I just want to make this real practical, okay? Friends, the way we interact with people 
has everything to do with abiding in the vine. And this is the hardest one. Has anyone ever offended you? Yeah, of course. Okay. You know what you're called to do to people who offend you and harm you? Love them. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you and malign you and say all kinds of evil against you. In other words, it's the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. John tells us, how can you love God whom you've not seen without loving your neighbor whom you have seen? Implication, how can you love God who you don't have his form or image when you can't love the real image in front of you? Man and woman made in the image of God. How can you say you love God when you can't even love the smaller image? And friends, that's hard. If you're a pastor, I know you've been wounded by sheep. I like to say there are some sheep who are like super agreeable and you want them in your home and in your presence. Then there's other sheep that when they open their mouths, it's like dog teeth in there. And they're snipping at you all the time. And then sometimes they break skin and you bleed because of them. And you know what? You're called to love those ones too. And that's hard. It's really hard to love sheep who bite. And sheep bite, don't they? You've been bitten by a sheep? I'm the only one that's been bitten by sheep. What am I doing wrong? All right, good. Plenty of times. Thank you, me and Robert. So, so friends, we need to practically love other people. Listen, if you say, they're my enemy, I can't stand them, they can't stand me, we have a clear word on that. Love your enemy. Do good to those who uh, persecute you. Is your enemy hungry? Is your enemy thirsty? Man, that's practical. We don't like that, though. <laughs> I don't like it. But friends, that, this is it. You need the power of God to do this. You can't do this on your own. You need to walk out the commands of Scripture, and sometimes they are hard. I mean, we've been challenged on women in ministry. Listen, if it's clear to you, you need to figure out a way with God's help to begin to walk that out. And that might take some time, but you got to figure that out. If you're now convicted and, and it's clear to you, you don't have a choice now. You got to take some action. Otherwise, you're just a hearer and you're not a doer. All right, now, now I'm almost done. One more. Can I do one more and then we're done? All right, one more slide. Here's practically what this looks like. You being healthy, you caring for your own self before you care for others, this is how you do it. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says this, we should always take the humble position. We humble ourselves, but listen, under the mighty hand of God. Now that implies that God is sovereign and His hand is over top of you. And listen, you should not be trying to always get out from under his hand. And his hand is not always blessing and good and great feelings. No, sometimes it's trouble and trial. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. You're like, wait, God sends trouble my way? Yes. James 1. And so... Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. But that's not all he says. So that at the proper time, God's timing, not yours, at the proper time, he may exalt you. In other words, if you can be humble and patient under God's sovereign hand on your life and you continue to stay under his sovereign hand, even if you don't like it, there will be a time when he exalts you. Now, don't read into that, yes, I'll finally get that Mercedes. Yes, I'll finally get that BMW. I just want a Toyota. Just give me a Toyota. I don't need the Mercedes. I don't need the... That doesn't mean that. Don't read your ideas into that. Let God exalt you the way He wants to exalt you. He will lift you up in the way He wants to lift you up. Okay? Now, verse 7. What do we do under the mighty hand of God, especially when it's not doing well, when it's not going well? We cast all our anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Friends, listen, this is an invitation in, in those times when you're by yourself with God. This is an invitation for you, listen, from God himself to just unburden yourself to him. 
What is troubling you in ministry, in life, with your family, with the world? God says, give it to me. I want to take it. You're like, I got this backpack of concrete cinder blocks on me. God's like, give it to me. I'll take it. And you're like, I want to carry the backpack, but I don't. It's this weird contradiction. Right? You're like, God, take the backpack. And he goes to take it. And you're like, no, I want it. <laughs> Listen, friends, sometimes things are so heavy that we literally have to keep giving it back to God, sometimes multiple times in a day, because we pick it back up and put it on our backs. We're such strange creatures. God says, give me all the burdens. And so we, we listen. Here's a burden, God. And then like when God's not looking, we're like, give me that burden back. Don't we? This is an invitation for you. Listen, friends, Jesus said this. Listen, there's only one place in scripture where Jesus actually revealed his heart. It's a great book called Gentle and Lowly. If you come next year, you'll get it. Uh, it's, it's almost in Kampala, <laughs> waiting to be given out, given out at next year's conference. And, and Dane Ortland points out that there's only one place in all of Scripture where Jesus talks about his inner person. You know, when the Bible says the heart, uh, it's the core of the being of the person. The place where the emotions, the intellect, and the will, and the motives flow from. The proverb says, guard the heart, for from it flow all the issues of life. And so Jesus, he actually gives us revelation into his heart. He says, I am gentle and lowly. In heart and then he says take my burden upon you for my burden is what light and my yoke is what easy now I driving here uh, I think it was maybe from the border up to Gulu I literally saw an animal strapped to a yoke with a plow behind it does it do any of you do that you use the animal to plow your field put your hand up if that's you None of you. Okay. I saw someone doing it. And I was like, that is biblical right there, man. Because the yoke was what they would put on an animal and then they would walk behind it with a plow and the animal would help them to plow their field. The yoke is the strap. It's the leather. It's what connects the, the machine that plows to the animal that pulls the plow. And Jesus is saying, look, put my yoke on you and I'm going to put something very light on you. It's not going to be heavy. For my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Friends, if you feel overwhelmed and burdened and heavy, guess who didn't put that on you? Jesus didn't put that on you. You put it on yourself. Or maybe someone else put it on you. People, people will gladly put their burdens on pastors. And they're like, I'm glad that's not on me anymore. Glad you got that. Friends, we need to continuously as pastors unburden ourselves to God who says in this verse, give it to me. Cast all your cares, one translation says, on me because I care for you. Cast all your anxieties on me because I care for you. All right, Jesus did this ultimately. Do you know where? Where can we see Jesus with anxiety, not sinful anxiety, but real anxiety, giving that burden over to God? Can any of you think of it? Who said it? Gethsemane. That's right. Literally sweating drops of blood, praying over and over, take this burden, take this burden, take this burden. Let me not drink this cup. But yet it was God's will for him to take that burden. This is, this is where Jesus can do what we can't do. Jesus knew he needed to bear the burden of the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. Amen. Past, present, and future. All those who would come to him, he's bearing their burden on the cross. Listen, there's only one savior and his name is Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself that we would be saved. Friends, you don't need to sacrifice yourself that others would be saved. You're not the savior. And that's good news. We don't need to be the savior functionally and definitely not theologically. You can't save people. And that's a beautiful thing. God says, give the anxieties and cares over to me. I'm the savior. You're not. You're a shepherd. I'm the savior. Let's get the distinctions right. Okay? So Jesus himself bears the burdens for us of our own sin so that we are light 
and free from our sins so that we don't have to walk under the weight of our sin anymore. We can cast off our sin because we have the Holy Spirit's power. Without me, you could do nothing. That implies the Holy Spirit needs to help us to do it. So we can repent of our sin and continue to leave the old behind and continue to pick up the new. And then as we do get burdened, which we will by the world and by our work, we can continually do this, cast our anxieties on God because he cares for us. How do you know he cares for me, you would ask? Friends, he went to the garden and then he went to the cross and he bore your sins in his body on the tree. He died for you, that's how I know he cares about you. He gave up his entire life to the last drop so that you would have life. That's how I know he cares for you. And then God raised him to the highest height so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the earth and under the earth to the glory of the Father. And now he says to you as his child and as his shepherd, give it to me, I'll take it. I already bore the most troublesome burden for you. Let me bear the little ones now. Friends, if you're not giving over your burdens to God, it's not because he didn't tell you you could. Okay? I love you and I hope this is practical and helpful. And I'm going to pray for us right now that we have the grace and help to do this because we need the Holy Spirit to do it. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Undeserved, unmerited, demerited favor. You love us in spite of us. You love us even while we were yet sinners. Jesus died for us. Father, thank you for putting our sin burden, our debt on Jesus and removing it from us. Jesus, thank you for paying the price for our burden of sin and failure and rejection of you. Father, I pray for every one of my brothers in this room and my sisters in this room that you would give us the grace from the Holy Spirit, the power from the Holy Spirit to continually, every day, unload our burdens and what troubles us and what gives us anxiety. Would we be able to give them over to you? Please, Holy Spirit, give us this power. And may we walk under that light and easy yoke and burden of Jesus. May we be quick to remember that if we're feeling heavy from ministry and the weight of it, we can give that over and over and over again and again. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are going to move on us in power. And I pray that you would, please. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. 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 Appreciate you guys.